Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. Not going to introduce me as a greaser? Uh, are you a jet or are you a shark? No, I'm not going to introduce you as a greaser because we're all just people, Wes. Uh-huh. Thanks, Grease. I didn't mean that. I mean, thanks, kid. Nobody knows what we're talking about unless they've seen The Outsiders. From 1983. Hasn't everyone seen The Outsiders 1983? I had not seen The Outsiders 1983 before preparing for this discussion. You're ke- you're not serious, right? For some reason, I know that Ralph Macchio's like on the stretcher thing upside down for some reason. Because we watched <laughs> this movie repeatedly. Don't remember it. Wow. Nothing? Like, oh nope. yeah, like, like fanatically the cadences didn't come in or anything? Nope. Wow. 1983, dude. 1983. I'm. I was three. Do you know how many times you... I watched The Outsiders? I got up in the middle of screening last night, and Kelly was like, "Aren't you going to pause it?" And I was like, "No, dude. I've seen this movie a thousand times." And she's like, "Really? Really? Why?" <laughs> and you answered her because I'm curious. Why? I don't know. Because Dad liked it, and he sat me down. And he's like, "The cool man, the greasers, and they have switchblades and Mustang. That car's tough." They also have butterfly knives. I mean, this is dad's era. Uh, I, I actually thought it was a little bit earlier. I thought it was late 50s, but I was like, I don't know. That Mustang looks to be around 65. And apparently people researched it and Beach Blanket Bingo being released in theaters was also 65. So that was a brand new car the Soches were driving. But for 65, mm. dad would have been about 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And this was before Saturday Night Fever, but he still identified, I think, with the greasers. I'm sure he did. And this is set in, well, close enough to reach Texas. Where is this set? Um, well, from what I can tell, at least they filmed it in Illinois. And I think there was something suggesting a sign that was saying uh, somewhere in Illinois. Okay. It says this is set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. So it's set in Tulsa, but I do think it was filmed in Illinois. Anyway, that would have made it literally close to home for dad. Yeah, super close. So you're probably mystified as to why I chose this movie other than the obvious ensemble cast. A Tom Cruise movie and that also a a distinctive first kind of movie like we did with The Quick and the Dead for Leonardo DiCaprio. It wasn't his first, but kind of his first uh, mainstream movie. And this one was a first for a lot of people. Yeah, it's kind I mean, easy with the Tom Cruise movie. I mean, this is as much a Emilio Estevez movie yeah. as it is a Tom Cruise movie or a Patrick Swayze movie or a Rob Lowe movie. And nowadays it's billed <laughs> as like, yeah, like a Patrick Swayze Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> Which is funny because Tom Cruise probably has the most minor role, wouldn't you say? Of the main outsider guys, of the main creatures, yeah. I mean, in fact, I didn't even remember what his name was. Do you remember? You remember what his character name? Yeah, he's the original Dirty Steve. There was a Steve played by Dermot Mulroney in Young Guns called Dirty Steve, and he very much looks like Tom Cruise in this role, who was also in Young Guns, who also starred Emilio Estevez. Wait, Tom Cruise was in Young Guns? Yeah. So Emilio Estevez, about three years later, had his big thing in Young Guns, and his buddy, Tom Cruise, they grew up together, went to the set. So in the big climactic shootout, Tom Cruise is a cavalry officer who gets shot. Spoiler. (sighs) 
All right. Uh, so they go way back. And then Tom Cruise invited him in turn to be in the opening scene of the original Mission Impossible. Was he a villain? Nope. He was a good guy on the team. Um, spoiler, he doesn't last long. Tom Cruise, you know, obviously a very charismatic young actor, but probably had to break in. Whereas Emilio Estevez, with his, you know, dad being Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen, Martin Sheen, kind of Hollywood royalty or like at least, you know, an easy legacy pick. Well, yeah. Coming up as a young actor. Especially for Francis Ford Coppola, who directed his dad in Apocalypse Now. Right. And he was going to have a minor role in that or something else. And he was like, no, he's a little bit wrong or too young or whatever. But he kept him in mind, obviously. And when the outsiders came around, he seemed ideal. Because nobody is greasier than 2-Bit. I mean, Tom Cruise's Steve is dirty, (laughs) but 2-Bit is greasy. He's greasy, although he keeps that Mickey shirt pretty tight and crisp. Yeah. Which is an interesting character touch. Like he loves to watch cartoons and wear Mickey shirts, but he's like dirty two bit. Yep. So did Tom Cruise kind of ride on Emilio Estevez's coattails? I guess so. I mean, he was an up and coming actor, but uh, on the set of this movie, he got the script for Risky Business. Uh, It's also the last time he played any kind of supporting role until Magnolia 15, 16 years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, You mean the Oscar-nominated role in Magnolia? Yep, one of his few Oscar-nominated roles. But it was also right before Karate Kid. It was right before The Breakfast Club for Emilio Estevez. You know, kind of a lot. Yeah, dude. Breakout stars almost across the board, except what happened to see Thomas Howell. Well, he was in Side Out, that volleyball movie in the later 80s. Right. Yeah. I Side don't know, Out. Man. Oh, yeah. My favorite, Side Out. Not everyone can survive. It's a hard business, a hard industry. And maybe he was typecast as Pony Boy. Maybe he's still gold. Oh, I mean, it just seems like amongst all of these rising rise stars, isn't it a little ironic that C. Thomas Howell was the lead? Well, yeah. Well, look at, you know who Thora Birch is? Yeah, the chick from American Beauty. Yep. And from Ghost World with a, and she was the lead in Ghost World and her co-star was a nobody actress named Scarlett something, Scarlett Johansson or something. <laughs> Some people just get left behind for various reasons. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, maybe Pony Boy was just too dreamy. <laughs> left behind. So she said, Cherry said, is he is he tough like so and so or or is he dreamy like you? Like but I think she mm-hmm. meant that he was a dreamer, right? Like he's digs sunsets and all that stuff. Could have been a multifaceted term. That's some sixties girl flirting. Double entendre. Yep, it's all subtle and junk. <laughs> as opposed to Dally, who was the least subtle flirter ever. Yeah, he was like all aggressive, like Top Gun style. Well, even more <laughs> aggro. <laughs> but then she said she was going to fall in love with him. I don't know. Kelly hit on that line too. I mean, I th- so I just, I thought that they were planting the seed that they were going to, you know, she was going to be like all Goonies style confiding in the younger kid because she's really into the older kid. Like Dally was Cherry's brand. Yep. But by Cherry, Cherry, you mean Cherry Valance, a.k.a. Diane Lane. What? Yep. The youngest Diane Lane ever. Young and just beautiful. Yep. In the only way that you can be when you're that painfully young. Yep. Unblemished or whatever. Like, you didn't even have time to have scars or anything. (laughs) Unlike poor Johnny. Yes, poor Johnny. He got tore up prior to the curtain rise here. But there's one painfully young person who wasn't exactly the cutest little thing. And I'm guessing you might know who that is. Who wasn't the cutest? It yeah. wasn't Ralph Macchio? He was kind of a cutie in this movie. Oh, so, oh you know, he's such a sweetheart. Uh, the little buck-toothed kid who wouldn't <laughs> go away. Do you, do you have a dime? Are you sure? Hey, mister. 
And then he's like, get out of here, kid. And then he puts on his sunglasses and like was like, that was close. <laughs> Sophia Coppola, the bucktooth pigtail girl, almost made you guys. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Man, she finds her way into all these little movies. That, ru- um, that ruins my trivia. That was going to be, uh, this movie is full of breakout stars and only one Oscar winner. Uh, Sofia Coppola won for writing yep. for Lost in Translation. Yeah. All right. So Sofia Coppola, prominent director and, you know, directed a bunch of movies. Do you know who wrote Gone with the Wind? Because it completely stumped me last night when Kelly asked me. They say they mentioned the author in The Outsiders. I, I don't remember. Did you ever read The Outsiders? It's like the like one of the original YA novels. It's like seventh grade. No. Uh, so I didn't actually read it either, probably because I saw this movie so mad. Like, I cannot remember a time when I hadn't seen this movie. But the reason that I wanted to review this movie is because I recently learned, like a dummy, because I never read The Outsiders, that S.E. Hinton, the author, is actually a lady. And not even a lady. She was 15 when she started writing this book, 16 when she finished, and 17 when it was published Mary Shelley style. Wow. I had no idea. And so when you talk about the cherry line, about I'll probably just fall in love with him or whatever. I was like, that sounds weird and like something a dude would write. Not at all. I mean, I can see how that would be something a little girl would write. A young a young girl would write. <laughs> Maybe. And she appeared in the movie when he's like, get out of my sight. You make me sick. And she's like, what happened to your gown? That was she was the nurse. It must be gratifying for actors to be able to like diss prominent behind the scenes people on on screen. <laughs> yeah, but uh, obviously it's all in fun and they loved her. Like every, they called her like mom and stuff on the set. S.E. Hinton? Yeah, author? I mean, because the novel already is like, I mean, because The Outsiders next year will be 40 years old. And the novel wow. is like 55 years this year. So she was what, a little over 30 when she was on the set, which is ancient to these actors. She went on to write a couple other things with Matt Dillon. Yeah. He was also in Rumblefish. Mickey Rourke wanted a role in The Outsiders and and uh, Coppola said that he didn't think he was a good fit, but I'll keep you in mind. And then he was the lead in Rumblefish. Yeah. Also some movie called Text or Text. Tex. <laughs> This is the most millennial thing you've ever said. Text. <laughs> and then she did another film with Emilio Estevez. So it sounds like it sounds like there were some lasting relationships built. Yeah, she says she's um, still in contact with most of the major stars. But I mean, what does like Matt Dillon or C. Thomas Howell have to do these days? Like, wh- why wouldn't Rob Lowe go to see her when he's in Tulsa? Oh, come on now. Those, they're still... <laughs> <laughs> they're not Tom Cruise level. Nope. But em- Emilio Estevez has got his show... Rob Lowe's kicking around. I can't name exactly what they're doing, but I feel like they pop up every now and then. Many, many things happen because of friendly rapport and family stuff. Like you said, how does Sofia Coppola end up in this movie? Because her dad directed it. And Tom Cruise might have buddied around with Emilio Estevez. So when he got his leading role, he's like, oh, my buddy Tom. Tom, my father or whatever. <laughs> he can be right. Dirty Steve. So <laughs> ready for your ready for your outsiders quiz, given how well-versed you are? Well. I did see it recently, so go. So of all the main greasers of The Outsiders, which one is the oldest? Matt Dillon. Uh, Nope. He just sounds older. Greaser. Not counting the Soches. Right. I guess I'd have to say Tom Cruise. Nope. Ralph Macchio is older than Tom Cruise by about eight months. 
baby face ass Ralph Macchio was the oldest at 20 or 21. No kidding. He's just so, he's just perpetually this little rail thin, like, when he's like karate a, kid. When he's like a soccer playing high school kid in Karate Kid, he's like mid-20s, dude. Really? Yeah. And and he and C. Thomas Howell apparently didn't get along. C. Thomas Howell was like, he's like too old and serious because he was only 15 at the time. And 21-year-old Ralph Macchio is like... Well, they look, they just look like birds of a feather. I didn't understand their dynamic with the Dally character. Dally was older. He was obviously wiser, right? He's tough. Dally's tough. And they defend him against Cherry, even though Johnny stands up to him when he's pestering Cherry and her friend. Yeah, but most people don't, I guess. Right. But how old was, do you know how old Dally's character was supposed to be? I'm not sure. I mean, I think he was an adult, but, uh, you know, he's he's old enough to have a driver's license, apparently. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know if the greasers needed driver's licenses, but old enough to where uh, that little exposition where he said, I thought that New York was the only place I'd, I'd end up in a murder rap. <laughs> like that speaks of yeah. history, right? That he's he's been around. And it seemed like he was on par with Derry, who like he was like, I don't want to have to be the one to tell your brother and get my head kicked in. Right. Yeah, they seemed like they were peers. So I guess Dally was obviously senior to them, and he was the person that they felt like they could come to who would not only help them in their time of need, but who would have a plan and an extra 50 bucks. Yep. So there's the murder at the fountain. Let's call it manslaughter in defense. (laughs) There was the unfortunate death of the Soch, and then they go to Dally, and Dally... I guess has a plan for just such an occasion. He go, you know, gives him 50 bucks, go get some groceries, go to this church location that he knows of. He has the times of the train, like he's got an exit plan. So they follow his directions. They go to the church. I'm tracking all of this, right? They hole up at the church. Why were there kids in the church? Oh, the kids were at a school. That wasn't the church nope. that they that burned down? Dally came and picked him up and they were driving along in his car and the, they passed the school on fire. Why did the school look all churchy and and abandoned? That's what everything looked like in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the 60s. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so I really missed that that wasn't the church because they set up the fire in the church. Be careful for the cigarette. You know, so I thought that it was a burning butt ember that set the church ablaze and I just couldn't place why all the kids were in it. It probably was. It was probably Jerry, that punk ass adult who was like smoking and telling him, oh, you shouldn't smoke, son. I smoke because I'm older than you, right? And then the fire started and he couldn't get everybody out because he was too fat. Well, that was uh, Johnny and Pony Boy's thesis, at least. They were like, someone says like, why isn't he helping? He's like, he's too fat. Right. And then so, of course, I had to rush to the internet to look up Jerry and I'm like 10 years older than that damn dude. No. (laughs) When he filmed this movie. The old fat dude. He's all like, like 30. Hey, son. Yeah, are you are you kidding me? You're a greaser and like calls him son. That's the most the most heroic thing and he like gives him advice and stuff and he's all young. No, it was one of the most heroic things. Not the most. Yeah. Apparently this this dude's also been around and seen lots of heroic stuff. Yeah. You know, my favorite thing about and by favorite, I mean that very loosely, about the whole fire scene is, uh, well, there's two things. One is the the woman's like, there's children missing. And he's like, no, there ain't. <laughs> yeah. so, what? Jerry's not having it, man. <laughs> he is not going to be bothered by this fire. And the second is when the kid bites the, does he bite Ralph Macchio? No, he bites he uh, bite? Pony Boy. He bites, why, why is the kid biting him? I don't know. <laughs> it would have been more efficient to just kick the hole in the wall and chuck him out, right? I don't know if you have to hand him off. Well, Dally kept busting through the boards at like 
right. very strategic points to like bust out the kids. He was like running around the outside looking for where they were and then like busting through all Hulk style. And so because this is a cheap production and we don't see Johnny get his back broken, presumably by the, the cross section or the, the rafter that hits him or whatever. And he, yeah. all we hear is the screaming and stuff. But still, that was a pretty hairy fire. Like it was undoubtedly in fire and they kicked out the thing and smoke came pouring out and they ran into the hole. I was like, whoa. Yeah, good point. Only so controlled, but for how kind of cheap this movie looked at times, it f- does feel dated to me. Uh, they really ran into, there was definitely fire and the stuff was on fire around them. There was a very prominently credited special effects artist or supervisor. And so it must have been all the fire, the um, pyro, because yep. now that you mention it, that did look pretty harrowing. I was definitely on edge, but it was kind of Pony Boy's fault. Wasn't he a little reckless in running into the fire? Yeah. It was kind of like Ponyboy was compelled because he's just a compassionate kind of dude. And then Johnny and Dally do what bros do, and they back their buddy. Yeah, yelling at him for being a stupid kid and stuff. But he probably insisted on saving those kids because he was like the same age as them. He was, <laughs> you know how young C. Thomas Howell was in this movie? You just said he was 15. Right. But he's so young that after they get home, he like falls asleep in the car and they carry him inside. Yeah. Like they're like, at what point do you stop falling asleep in the car and your parent or parent figure carries you out of the car to your bed? Those were the days. Roblo even says, getting too old for this. Yeah, getting a little bit big to be carried. It's like, you think? (laughs) By 10 years? But uh, he also... His gangly arms all like flailing around. (laughs) Yep. He like runs to the park after Derry pushes him down. And he goes, come on, Johnny, we're running away. And then they both get up and run away. (laughs) Oh, he's such a baby. It's ridiculous. Running away to the park where they get stalked. You ran away. Yeah, I did. But I didn't actually run. I took bottles like juices and junk. <laughs> and where did you go? Uh, to the park. That's what you do. Did you announce that you were running away? No, that's lame. So you just stealthily snuck out with your provisions, went to the park, and then did what? Tried to like sleep under the jungle gym, but it didn't work. So then you just like sit around until dawn and then go home because you're all cold. And what did mom and dad do? I don't remember. Nothing. You ran away a couple times. Yeah. Nothing? Did they know you were gone? The definition of running away from me is defying like curfew or whatever and just trying to make him worry. And dad didn't care. Yeah, it sounds like you were an outsider. You know it. But I mean, this is a trope, right? Just like the Breakfast Club, they're, regardless of your status in life, these are just disassociated, disillusioned kids. It was like dangerous Greece. It was like the the multiverse of madness version of John Travolta's Greece, where they're like all <laughs> all mad and running away and stabbing each other for real. Were the kids in Greece greasers? Yeah, if they were gonna be, it's called Greece. But they didn't have bad home lives. No, they were kind of Greece social hybrids. They were right. Yeah, there was a difference between Danny Zuko and Sandy. But it wasn't so much... It wasn't economic status. It was more... Exactly. Uh, ...image and appearance. It was more philosophical, which is weird, and I guess just a more watered-down version of what they were trying to do here, which is, I guess, a better, a more a more authentic version than what we get in West Side Story. I mean, West Side Story is very uniquely East Coast, despite it being called the West Side Story. And because it's a musical, it has like so many more conventions and it feels more artificial. They, they tried to give some dimensionality to these two different social classes or these two different groups, but really they're just archetypes representing the lesser privileged and then the kids from the heights. 
but I guess they did exist. Uh, you know, this was very much Essie Hinton's reality in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was more of a greaser, but because she was in advanced classes, AP classes, she was hanging out with the socias. And so she was kind of caught between worlds when one of her friends got beat up, which is the opening of this movie, which is Pony Boy getting beat up, which was actually cut out. And Johnny got beat up off screen. Oh, so so Pony Boys was part of that altercation, and they just decided, okay, we're going to reuse the ending for the beginning where he's writing his novel? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was separate, because he tells Cherry that one of my friends got beat up, but he got beat up too. But the question is, we talked about West Side Story and how it lends itself well to a musical because it feels otherworldly in the late 50s or around 1960, but we talked about how ridiculous it was that anybody with any common sense would be like, hey, you want to have a rumble with chains and knives? And you'd be like, no, thank you. Like, that seems like it sucks. I don't have any enough to prove to justify this existence. But, I mean, the same thing here. Kelly was like, do people actually do this? Like, with chains and knives and meat and beat each other bloody? Yeah. Is it all fronting? Is it all for show or for pride? Or is this for survival? I, I mean, I don't know that Dad ever got into actual rumbles. But do you remember the story of him? ripping pickets off of fences with nails in them to go and like burying people's heads and then there was like the one dude who like would rip car antennas off and try to whip people in the eyes oh my god no (laughs) his dad on the streets of chicago I mean, I, they were, he'd definitely tell me stories about people packing heat for whatever reason. Yeah, but I think that was later. That was more in the Saturday Night Fever, young adult, like mid-20s kind of thing. I mean, that sounds like survival to me. Well, there was definitely turf, right? So there was... Yeah, they're on our... This a, is our turf. Yeah, there was turf war stuff to it, but it seemed more just like, I'm really bummed and I'm really hurt, and therefore let's fight. Right. Because that's what kids do. I mean, maybe that's what people do. Sorry. Self-destructive behavior. But is that, to Kelly's question, is that what they do? I don't know. Never, Not me. Or is that like a really soch question to ask? No, this is, I mean, yes, they probably have rumbles because of the in, the perceived insult of him killing, you know, a greaser killing a soch in self-defense. And I guess you have to vent that frustration somehow or whatever. But also the moral of this movie is bullying is bad, right? Don't... <laughs> Get your comeuppance. Parents, don't bully your kids. They're going to turn bad or whatever. Dairy, don't push your brother down. That's one aspect. I think that the other is to stay golden, to be young. I mean, did Dally even have a chance, though? You know, I don't think he's ever seen a sunset. There's still good in the world. Tell Dally. I don't think he knows. I mean, obviously he's seen sunsets, but was he just a bad seed? I don't know. He had good intentions. He didn't see, he hadn't seen, seen them. He hadn't seen them, taking them in. He hadn't, he saw the bad in the world. He didn't see the good in the world. He didn't see the possibility in the world. And when your world is really small, which it sounds like it was for the Johnny character and probably for the majority of the greasers, then it's really easy to think that this is it. And if your it is pretty bad, then maybe you don't have a ton to live for. That doesn't mean that you're not passionate, filled with the passion of youth, where he gets, he says, give me the knife. And then he like, stabs the nightstand do it for johnny man do it for johnny (laughs) which i didn't understand because it's not like the socias had anything to do with johnny's death but they were going to get back at the socias because the socias killed or were trying to kill presumably drowned pony boy and johnny had to act in self-defense which led him to go run away and which led him to get hurt but we can see johnny's unquestionable angelic heroism right so that he can die a hero rather than an ambiguous would-be murderer (laughs) a manslaughterer 
I mean, that that's a pretty dangerous game to start fake drowning somebody in a fountain. I mean, how do you know how much is too much when you're threatening to drown somebody? Don't know. Never did it. Never tried it. You've always had knives. Yeah. Whether it be pocket, butterfly, or did you ever have a switchblade? Uh, no, dad had a switchblade, but it was more for show. Did you ever pull a knife out on anybody? In seriousness or in jest? In self-defense. No. Once you do that, you have to follow through. The same rules apply for a gun. You don't produce it unless you're, you intend to use it because it escalates Otherwise, things Otherwise you show your quickly, hand. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. You're tough. Mustang's tough. <laughs> what did you think about these accents, speaking of? I can't help it. I watched this movie and you're like, whoa, it's a Karate Kid. Whoa, it's Maverick and all this stuff. But sorry, Ralph Macho kind of sucks. What? No. He's pretty, uh, to me, he's very awkward up top. More awkward than Tom Cruise or Emilio Estevez? Yeah, but Tom Cruise is just the full of energy, loud, dirty Steve type. And like, see, Thomas Howell's pony boy is meant to be like, kind of like, I could never stab anyone. But Johnny is like trying to affect the accent. Apparently, this was Ralph Macchio's dream role. He read the role and loved the character and identified with the character and very much wanted to play the character and then got to play the character and kind of sucked at it. Sorry. But uh, he was the most notable standout to me. Uh, His accent was the hardest. I think that two-bit, like Emilio Estevez, was much more natural. Everybody feels real in this movie, except for Ralph Macchio, whose scar never looked convincing. I mean, he's fine. It's not to say he was terrible, but when he tried to affect the accent, it always was as weird and strange and out of place to me feeling as Matt Dillon stabbing the nightstand. It's like, oh, that moment doesn't work. And kind of a lot of Johnny's moments didn't work. Hmm. Sorry, Ralph Macchio. I don't know that I'd agree. Ralph Macchio was pretty charming young kid. And it's hard because he really is, first and foremost, the karate kid. He's forever Daniel Russo. So it's weird to hear him talk like this, but it's it was weirder for me to hear Tom Cruise. <laughs> and Emilio Estevez, I kind of get that his character was meant to be like a jive-talking funny man. Like his laugh cracks me up. Yeah. Where he would like crack a joke and be like, hey. <laughs> I found Steve's role, Tom Cruise's Steve, to be a little less convincing than Ralph Macchio. I mean, I don't know. Steve had the appropriate teeth, and Tom Cruise got the most hurt, so he was the most devoted. Tom Cruise got the most hurt? Yeah. Supposedly, someone said, one of the major cast members alleged that Tom Cruise, his dedication to the role, meant that he had a tooth pulled after the rumble. So that his character Ooh. would look appropriate. But but the, it's a conflicting report. What I know is that <laughs> he broke his thumb uh, and that he got really punched in the face that required some dental work. Ooh. And so, I don't know. But uh, he had nothing to lose and he's back flipping off of cars and stuff. And Patrick Swayze that really did that stunt on the, on the fence. As we can see in Point Break, he was a pretty athletic, gymnastic kind of dude. But that's probably yeah. what happens. Like I, this movie is full of natural moments. The thing where two bits like, hey, I found me a new hat. Like the wind machine had knocked the hat off a camera dude and Emilio Estevez picked it up and it stayed in the movie. <laughs> the scene where where Dally falls off the chair when he's hitting on Cherry and, and see Thomas Howell laughs to the camera. That was totally unintentional. Oh, when Dally gets the cigarette from Pony Boy and then turns over and immediately crushes it on the bed. <laughs> yeah, and just like throws it out of frame. <laughs> a lot of the natural moments that, that, that he likes or whatever. So I think it was a good, fun environment in the movie. And, and, and as such, there are some flaws, right? There's some, some ugliness and some stuff that maybe wouldn't. I don't know that this was the finely tuned studio movie that it might have been in someone else's hands. 
It was like a passion project. Did you do you know about the the making of this film? Did you see the dedication at the credits? I did. It was dedicated to I'm assuming Coppola's teacher. No, it's a random school. It's a, it's a Kelly Joe, I think was her name, a teacher, and she was at Lone Star School in Texas. The kids read the book in seventh grade, as kids in seventh grade did at that time, and petitioned and wrote Francis Ford Coppola a letter and was like, you should make this movie. And he was like, all right, I'll make this movie. That said, not everybody was happy with the adaptation of the book. A lot of it was left out because this movie is like a trim hour and a half plus one minute. So you don't get Mm -hmm. a lot of the flow and the the breathing room. But I didn't know this because I thought you had seen this movie countless times. And you were like, dude, the outsiders. Do you remember watching it with me? Not really, but do I remember watching any of them with you? I just remember the movies. Apparently, uh, mm-hmm. in 2005, Francis Ford Coppola released the extended edition, which adds a full 30 minutes, and he called it Outsiders, the complete novel, which I haven't seen, which I just found out. The movie we watched was the theatrical cut because that's the movie I thought we had always watched. So your first time seeing The Outsiders, for all intents and purposes... I don't know, man. This movie feels like one of those childhood classics to me. Apparently, it wasn't for you. You must have been totally confused when I pushed this movie on you. I was totally confused until I saw the cast and I was like, whoa. I mean, other than the cast, this was not on my radar at all. I mean, Coppola, he's such a hit or miss director. I mean, obviously talented and has directed some of the best movies of all time. But um, a little inconsistent, in my opinion. Yeah, he does what he wants which is fine. The Outsiders feels, and maybe that's the right vibe for the Outsiders where anything can happen and you have to kind of roll with it. So that seems, that seems appropriate for him. I mean, you probably could have planted that a storm was coming before just dropping gallons and gallons of water on the kids in the rumble. Like, didn't that seem a little random to you? Yeah, it was random, but also it's a big fight. It's elaborately staged and choreographed, and it's not really blocked, you know, like super high-profile Hollywood professionally. Uh, people actually got hurt and stuff, and so he was trying to mask some of those those pulled punches. But yes. it was already freezing. Everybody was freezing with the water machines. It was a real movie, man. I mean, I'm just saying, probably could have anticipated the storm a little bit because it seemed like they all assembled and then boom, like the moment Matt Dillon comes running across the field, it just, the floodgates open and everyone's just drenched. I figured it was for dramatic effect. Hey, so you figure they could have used the weather as a character a la Mary Shelley? Exactly. I mean, at least give us some ominous foreshadowy thunder or something. Outsiders was a part of my childhood because of dad. I'm sorry that you missed out on this growing up because it was kind of a classic, but revisiting it, it does feel small and a little bit weird and a little bit thrown together. It's an all right movie, but uh, as it tends to be the case for huge breakout stars, it's like, really? That was their first movie? And it wasn't. It wasn't pretty much anyone's first movie, but uh, it definitely is the one that, that brought everybody to prominence for me. Yeah, brought everyone together in this weird, fortuitous, cinematic moment where all of these stars collided in this otherwise kind of little movie, kind of little independent movie, The Outsiders. And so your official rating isn't all right. Yep. Mine is a good. That's our discussion on The Outsiders from 1983, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring everybody that you know and love in Hollywood. Available, as far as we know, only on VOD. So if you need Wes's Prime login, just hit us up, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at or whatever movies, And please support us on Patreon. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. 
Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all times? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling, styles, representation, the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Electric acid. Electric acid.